Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are bringing you an emergency substitution vault episode because Rob and I and Seth just had the uh, every podcaster's nightmare where we had an episode all recorded uh, and and ready to have for you tomorrow. And it was lost due to a technical glitch. Uh, You you should have heard the, the sounds of anguish echoing through my home. Uh, so, so instead, we are bringing you a vault episode, but it's a really good one. So th- this should really be a treat. This was our interview with Mary Roach from last year. Uh, it originally published on September fourteenth, twenty twenty one, and it's about her wonderful, uh, funny, and fascinating book, Fuzz: When Nature Breaks the Law. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. And uh, needless to say, the the book Fuzz is available wherever you get your books. Yes. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, so Whistling Part 4, which we were going to have for you today, we're going to have to re-record that episode. That'll be a strange experience, but we that, that should be out for you, I believe, next Tuesday. We haven't had this happen in a very, very long time. So this, yeah. this is a, an exceedingly rare occurrence. So uh, yeah, it'll be business as usual uh, next week. Can we create the illusion? Can we make it feel like the first time again? I don't know. We'll see what happens. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. In today's episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we have a special interview guest. 
It's science writer Mary Roach. We're going to be chatting with her about her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, which is out today wherever you get your books. This is my first Mary Roach book, and I love it. It uh, I, I, I feel ashamed now that I uh, had never read one of her books before. Um, but she has such an infectious and enjoyable prose style that really gets in your head. Um, one of the things that I wanted to emphasize in the intro here, because uh, because I had just been thinking about it, in terms of subject matter, this book gets into a lot of kind of dark and grisly sounding uh, stuff, but it is... But despite that, it is a really funny book. It is like one of the most laugh out loud funny books I've read in a long time. Yeah, it's engaging. It's weird. It's fun. Um, I was telling my wife about the the book, and she's read Mary Roach before. Mm-hmm. And and my wife was was like, "Well, some of that sounds a little dark. I don't know if I want to read that right now." But but of course, th- this has always been the way with Mary Roach books. They're they do get into dark territory, uh, but they are always fun and and humorous. Um, if if you're not familiar uh, out there, her previous books include uh, 2003's Stiff, which is about cadavers. Uh, 2005 Spook, which is about uh, scientific inquiries, uh, especially early scientific inquiries into the supernatural. Uh, 2008's Bonk, which is about uh, sexuality. 2010's Packing for Mars, which is about uh, uh, the, the science, scientific uh, research into uh, uh, into, into the quest for space. 2013's Gulp, which is about uh, human digestion. Uh, and uh, then uh, 2016's book was Grunt, which is uh, about uh, military uh, scientific investigations. Uh, I've read all of these, and I, I think this is, the, this is the fourth time Mary has actually been on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, as she previously dropped in to talk about Packing for Mars, Gulp, and Grunt. Uh, she's either our most featured guest at this point, or she's tied for the honors. I can't remember. Either way, friend of the show status is definitely in place. Mary Roach, thanks for joining us today. Uh, could, could you introduce yourself? Of course. I'm Mary Roach. <laughs> As you said, uh, I'm a nonfiction author, and uh, my most recent book is called Fuzz. The subtitle is When Nature Breaks the Law. Uh, I have been so enjoying this book. Uh, I, I love uh, your dry, humorous prose style in it. And I thought before we got to any broader questions about um, about the book and what you've learned from writing it, I thought it would be good to kick off with an example of the kinds of experiences you cover in the book. And so I loved the story you cover in the very first chapter about the wildlife human attack response training course you went through in Las Vegas. Uh, could you tell us a bit about this conference and, and uh, what got you there and what it was like? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, Wildlife Human Attack Response Training uh, um, or WART. Uh, which by its founder's admission is a terrible acronym. So WART is a five-day course, which I uh, I was lucky enough to be able to sit in on. And it's most uh, almost entirely attended by uh, people who deal with wildlife attacks, the aftermath of the attack. And it's basically, you know, you're setting up a crime scene and you're doing forensics as you might in the case of a human on human killing. Uh, and you're trying to trying to take evidence, collect evidence, establish linkage between the perpetrator and the victim. Um, and if they've, they've, they've caught an animal that they think might be the animal and the, the DNA doesn't match or they don't they're not able to establish that linkage, they'll release the animal. So there's these bizarre parallels to uh, the human the human criminal justice system. Uh, but for me, it was just a fascinating five days of hanging out and hearing a lot about 
uh, predator attacks and the aftermath, which was uh, both uh, fascinating and often quite grisly, G-R-I-S, not Z-Z. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, that, and it was utterly fascinating to me because I've, you know, I've never encountered this world and did not know that these crime scenes were processed that way and that this work was done. Yeah. So you include some details about like uh, these sessions where you would be given a mannequin that had these wounds inflicted on it with saws and knives and things. And you'd have to establish what type of animal it was from the wounds on the mannequin. Yeah. 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 They had these uh, soft touch mannequins. They're not like something you'd see in a store window. They were, uh, they were, you know, they're fleshy, I'll say <laughs> fleshy. And they were the people who had created these wounds for people who've seen them. I mean, they were based on actual bodies and the wounds on the victims of attacks. Some of them bear, some of them cougar or mountain lion. Um, and uh, quite, uh, quite realistic, I have to say. And, and so there were, there were, we all had workstations, you know, there were about, a, there were about, uh, I think eight, or more, uh, maybe a few more workstations. Each group had a, a mock victim. And the idea was, look at these wounds and, and what can you learn? And you can pretty quickly uh, make a distinction between, uh, first of all, human versus animal, and then um, uh, mountain lion versus bear. They kill in very different ways. They have very different teeth and claws and, and the marks on the body and the wounds will tell you um, quite readily who the perpetrator or what species the perpetrator was. Um, and then after that is established, then you sort of, you're moving down to more the nitty gritty of um, looking at saliva, you know, matching DNA between the victim and the animal. So you might be doing that with saliva on the victim's body uh, or blood. You might be looking uh, into the, the gums of the animal to see if, is there uh, human tissue there and does, is that, does that match you know, the victim? So you'd be just like you might do on, you know, uh, CSI or, or one of those uh, shows that I never watch, but those forensic shows. So mm -hmm. uh, super interesting stuff. One of the details from the section that really stuck with me was, uh, and warning to everyone, this is about to get gruesome, the idea of since bears tend to, when they do attack humans, which is rare, but when they do, they tend to bite repeatedly at the face that you might expect to, say, find human uh, facial features like lips or something it stuck in the bear's teeth. Or uh, the stomach. Uh, you would examine the bear's uh, stomach contents and uh, they're, you know, they're, they're uh, not necessarily chewing all that thoroughly. And so you might find, you know, an entire eye or in one case, uh, a part of the scalp with a, a, a mohawk haircut and which in fact matched the, the victim's hairstyle. So uh, yeah, with bears, um, because bears, when they attack each other, they use their teeth and go for the face. They go for each other's face because that's lightly furred and they can inflict more damage. And that's the, that's their kind of Achilles heel, which is in their, <laughs> their head, not their foot. Uh, so they're, um, that's kind of what they do, and when um, that's which makes for some pretty um, horrible uh, injuries. Uh, also, uh, you see that also um, you know, with with cougars because they they they're biting at the neck. Um, but sometimes, you know, when um, I use the comparison again, rather grisly, but when you think of biting into a very ripe plum, how when you bite into it, the skin pulls away. Uh, so, so what you sometimes have is kind of these scalpings as it were because that you know if you if you try if you're an animal and you're trying to get your jaw around 
a human head, you're hitting bone right away. And then you close your jaws and it pulls the skin away. So some of these um, mannequins were really a little tough to tough to see. And I can imagine uh, coming upon the real thing would be pretty disturbing. But one of the interesting things that uh, is, is, is a takeaway from observing all these different kinds of wounds is that almost all of them indicate that we are not really what this animal has evolved to use its jaws or claws on. And so like you described with the uh, with the cougars biting the back of the head or bears attacking humans, the bites almost reveal the strangeness of this encounter between the human and the animal. Right. A bear, a, a bear's eat i mean they they're mostly eating nuts berries fruit um if sometimes fish grasses uh so they have molars that uh, they have a jaw that goes side to side and they've got molars for crushing and grinding um so they they so the the bites on a human it's a it, it's it's messy is the way it was put it's kind of a messy affair whereas a uh a mountain lion is does a, a leaps, attacks, secures the prey, does a killing bite. So these these puncture wounds, these triangular puncture wounds, uh, it's a less messy death, uh, if you will. So yeah, you can really see how the animal is equipped to gather its food. And uh, and with mountain lions, yeah, they do tend to they, they they pounce and kill. They are predators and true carnivores, but they're not. Intri- we're not on the menu. You know, they like deer or wild pigs or they're not they're not going after humans very, very rarely. A whole decade will go by in California where we don't have a single mountain lion fatality. It's just a very unusual occurrence. Now, speaking of bears, I, I was really I really enjoyed the uh, how not only with the bear chapter, but, you know, multiple chapters in, in the book, you you kind of. Um, you know, you, you turn our pre-existing notions of these animals kind of on their head, even if we we think that our pre-existing notions are kind of you know well informed. Uh, but with the, with the bear in particular, when you're talking about the the break-ins uh, that are you know, perpetrated by bears in, in these cases, uh, how it seems like the bear is such a contradiction. Can you speak to like some of those some of those details about like how how reckless they can be, but then so how just uh, almost hauntingly precise. Sure. Yeah, I spent some time in um, Pitkin County, Colorado, on the outskirts of downtown Aspen, up in the hills. Um, and this is a, a, a ski resort town. Uh, we're up in the mountains. We are in bear territory, uh, and so uh, the bears are. Uh, the bears start to realize you know, nuts and berries. These are great. Crab apples, choke cherry. This is great. But these humans. These humans seem to have some really good stuff inside their homes <laughs> and a bear that kind of realizes that it's it, it surprisingly adept at popping a window uh, or even turning, they call them bear handles. Uh, they're French door handles, which you just push down on and push the door and it opens quite easily. So bears are uh, find it very easy to, to, to get into to people's homes and People are sometimes surprised. I mean, it depends on the bear, but some bears like the the, the break in that where I went to the aftermath uh, of this break in and the bear had uh, gone through a downstairs uh, through a deck leading to a bedroom downstairs and then up to the kitchen. Didn't knock anything over. Uh, didn't even leave footprints. Uh, some bears, um, the, the guy who the wildlife invest, it was uh, Colorado Fish and Game or Fish and Wildlife. Uh, that uh, he was talking about how they they'll sometimes reach in like take out a carton of eggs and set aside or or take out things that they don't want and put them aside one bear 
allegedly opened a Hershey's Kiss, opened the foil, <laughs> a Hershey's Kiss, uh, and, ate, and ate that. So they're they're um, yeah they they're while they can create you know a god awful mess whether it's on a, a body or in someone's kitchen sometimes they're surprisingly um, precise and laid back. It's uh, it's interesting how different their person individual personalities are. Was it from uh, uh, the person you were speaking with at Colorado Fish and Wildlife that you got that fact about, uh, or at least the allegation that some of these bears apparently have brand preferences when it comes to ice cream? Like they really like Hagen Dazs, <laughs> but they yeah. don't like the store brand. Yes, it was. It was. Uh, it was a woman from uh, the neighboring town. Is it Snowmass? I think the. Uh, it's a. It's a. Again, a, a mountain resort, a ski and mountain biking resort town tina white i believe her name was and she said uh, that the the black bears in the area they prefer premium brands they will not touch western family ice cream which i guess is like a low rent brand that they have in colorado uh-huh. <laughs> and they're like no 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 thank you <laughs> <laughs> i i gotta say the, the the parts of that chapter where you were talking about the bears getting into the trash uh the unsecured trash outside of fancy restaurants that was really making me hungry when you were listing all the foods they were stabbing their snouts into so the rotten burrata cheese and the and the, the salmon sustainable sakuna salmon and that, <laughs> exactly they were like this is some good eating shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, let's see. I, let's let's go a little broader for a second here, and just talk about the book itself, uh, which again is Fuzz when when nature breaks the law. I was just wondering how how long have you been planning this particular book, and is there is there anything in particular that you can point to as being like the inspiration point that led you down this road? Oh, I wish I had a great origin story because people uh, people often ask about that, and um, I, I came to it, this one in a, it, it's a really kind of circuitous roundabout, not necessarily all that interesting path. Uh, I had originally gotten interested in, uh, wildlife crime scene forensics, but not when the, the animals are the perpetrators, but when the animals are the victims. Hmm. Uh, so I was up at this forensics lab that the fish and wildlife department has talking to this woman who was an expert in, uh, how to tell counterfeit versus genuine dried tiger penis because of course it's illegal to traffic an animal endangered animal parts and uh as it turns out uh almost always what's being passed off as tiger penis is deer or horse or cow partly because those are easier to come by and they're bigger and more impressive and if you're trying to quote-unquote cure (laughs) erectile dysfunction (laughs) or or make yourself more virile um, a little tiger penis doesn't it doesn't have the right optics anyway that's a long-winded way of saying I was up at this lab, um, the Fish and Wildlife uh, National Wildlife Forensics Laboratory, and I thought, well, this this could be an interesting area. But as it turns out, 
I was not going to be able to follow any open investigations. I wasn't going to be able to tag along with investigators and do the kind of thing I really have to do for my books to make it interesting for myself, uh, hopefully for the reader. So that was a dead end. And I kind of various other things happened, but I eventually thought, well, what if I turn it around? And what if the animals were the perpetrators and the people are the victims? And, and you know, what, 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 what's to be done there? And I learned that there's in fact a whole science that's devoted to this called human wildlife conflict and the science of human wildlife conflict. And there's conventions and scientists and researchers. So I thought that could be an interesting world to step into. So it was a circuitous path. It wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I have not been attacked or not until the book <laughs> by any animal. <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, you were, uh, you were robbed by a monkey. Uh, I was I- mugged by a macaque. Yes, I was. Uh, so when I, when I picked up the book and was getting into it, you know, I, I expected a lot of it, of course, to be happening uh, in a contemporary setting and dealing with our modern world, thinking like, okay, this is where the, the legal system has led, and this is where you know the, the growth of human populations and expansion has led. So I was, I was really um, surprised and interested when you mentioned a book from 1906, uh, The Criminal Prosecution and Punishment of Animals by, I believe, E.P. Evans. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this? Sure. That's something I came up upon very early on and also uh, pushed me toward this topic. A, a bizarre book. Uh, this is a book detailing the things that human societies used to do to deal with animals and insects that were uh, committing crimes against them. Crimes in, in the sense of you know, following our laws, you know, uh, stealing or, or committing manslaughter. And what used to happen um, is that they were... Uh, criminally prosecuted. The example I give in the book is this case. It's from 1659 in Northern Italy, a province in Northern Italy. And um, caterpillars were eating a lot of the crops, uh, lettuces, whatever they were, as caterpillars will do. They're hungry. They've got to, you know, bulk up for their little transition. And so the the community, the, the, the um, whoever the magistrate or the head person was, posted summons, legal summons on the trees in the area, requesting that the caterpillars appear in court on a set date, at which point the summons said they would be assigned legal representation and a a, a trial would ensue. And of course, the caterpillars did not appear in court, (laughs) uh, but by that time had pupated, weren't causing any problems anymore uh, but the, but that's this book it's, it's like 400 pages of well-documented situations and cases there were you know a, a livestock some of it pigs pigs killing small children not we don't hear about that happening much today but apparently it used to happen with some frequency the pigs being tried um executed sometimes imprisoned and 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 i thought this i almost thought this was a hoax because it was so so bizarre um, but the, back, the appendix has a number of these uh, documents in, um, in some detail in Latin, a lot of the times, sometimes French. Uh, um, and so it was, it was real. And it was not that there were just simple minded people. It was the way the way the author explained it. It was a way to um, display the, 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 the breadth of your powers as a, as a legal entity or as a leader. You know, even nature must follow my rules and you will be punished. So it's kind of a display kind of ludicrous, but a display of dominion and power and um, I control all. Uh, so, but, so, but the, the details were, were, were quite, um, quite amazing. I mean, people, writs, W-R-I-T, writs of ejectment 
that were stuffed into the burrows of rats. Like you must leave the, you must vacate the premises under penalty of law. Uh, Obviously legal system, not the best approach with animals. Uh, They don't read, they don't care. They just want a place to have a nest or get something to eat. And we offer that and they take advantage of it. These are crimes of opportunity for the most part. Anyway, that that book is a a fascinating, if not particularly easy to get through, but a fascinating (laughs) read. 1906 uh, is when that book was published. Do you think these kinds of legal actions were at all um, based on a certain theological understanding of law? Uh, I I don't recall any mention of this in the book, but... um, you know, was there an idea that maybe if you issued a certain kind of uh, a legitimate uh, uh, sanction by the court that somehow God would enforce it or something? Yeah, yes, there there definitely was a religious element. There was this sense, uh, this belief that these plagues and these um, actions of these animals were being were, were a punishment on the, the, the people themselves, that that God was punishing us by sending these creatures. So yeah, that was that was tied into it. There was a, a belief that we, the community, are being punished. And so, you know, we will I mean, I, I don't know if that's exactly what you were asking, but that was that was definitely um part of the um part of the, the belief. But but uh, on the subject of, of theology and, uh, and and religion, you do in, later in the book get into that a bit, uh, uh, talking to uh, individuals about like what is what, what is one's religious responsibility towards these animals that we may think of as vermin. Well, it, yeah, I spent some time in India, which has a, um, quite a different attitude and relationship you know, attitude toward animals and relationship with them. Partly because uh, a lot a lot of the deities in Hinduism are animals. Or they're, you know, they appear as animals, or the, the spouse is an animal, or they ride around on an animal. Or they themselves, like Hanuman, is uh, you know the monkey head, and, and Ganesh, the elephant. Cows are considered sacred. So it's a, a, a when those animals start to cause problems, um, people are not as quick to rush in uh, to call in the authorities to exterminate them or call them. Uh, and, and there's a there's a stigma attached to that. And, you know, New Delhi, the tremendous problems with macaques, um, troops of macaques, not just not just Delhi, all, all over cities in northern India, um, macaques cause a lot of problems. And uh, one of the things that's done in New, New Delhi is to catch them and transport them down to this large uh, sanctuary in the southern part of the city. It used to be a mine and now it's rewilded and is a place where the macaques are let loose. And it's very, very hard for the, uh, the, the authorities to hire monkey catchers. I mean, that is, this is, you, would, you would be looked at askance if you were somebody who was trapping and manhandling macaques because of the religious significance of these animals. The other thing going on, uh, while they're pests and nuisances to people, that people are also, at, uh, they, they gather at temples, these monkeys, because they know people will... And that, Offerings they will uh, not only inside the temple where you know the more conventional um, offerings are made, but when they go outside, they see the monkey and they will give the monkey you know fruit or little packets of soda or whatever. The, and they'll they'll so they're they're both encouraging the animal and then also being harassed by it. So it's a sticky problem there. The the religious the religious elements make it more complicated when it uh, when it comes to finding some sort of solution. There are several examples in the book where you discuss uh, animals that in some way interact or have conflict with or live alongside humans and how um, there might be a sort of 
emergent evolutionary pressure on animals that know how to exploit humans and just like just to the right extent without overstepping and then being being dealt with violently like uh you, you talk about this in the chapter with the bears which i thought was really interesting how there there could be a kind of evolutionary advantage for what are called the fat albert bears the <laughs> bears that are you know get in and get a lot of calories out of your fridge but are less likely to have uh, a scary conflict with a person or less likely to damage the house Right. Yeah. The, the fat, yeah, fat Albert was a bear that uh, was quite good at breaking into people's cabins and homes. This is again, Colorado. Uh, but people would marvel afterwards, like he came in here, didn't damage anything. I mean, people were kind of impressed, you know, okay. Raided the fridge, took some stuff, didn't break anything. So, so not as likely to be angry or to perceive this creature as a threat and to call uh, Colorado parks and wildlife and and you know request something be done about the bear so so then you know the more fat alberts I mean, the, the more these bears persist uh, and and survive to breeding age uh, the more you're going to sort of see more hopefully more fat alberts because the bears that are very aggressive uh that are aggressive toward people or their pets or that break in and cause a lot of damage they uh, to use the phrasing of the person i was talking to they're going to get whacked fast like some people are going to be feel threatened they're going to complain they're going to call the agency the agency's going to come out set a big culvert trap and that animal will be destroyed so uh possibly yes possibly the, the, you know the, the fat alberts will be seeing more and more of them and fewer and fewer of the aggressive ones and um that could be a good thing over time <laughs> Now, in your your section uh, in your in Fuzz dealing with animals on the highways, uh, you discuss self driving car solutions to to animal strikes, uh, and I, I found this very fascinating as well. Uh, how does it seem that self driving cars are likely to react to animals on the road in the future? Well, right now there's something called a large animal detection system. So, uh, an animal that kind of a long legged tall animal. Uh, anything that comes into the path, the, you know, the beam of the detector that fits that visual profile will cause the car to, to stop. I mean, the brakes will be applied. Uh, and the reason it's a large animal detection system, what they're hoping to prevent is collisions with a moose an elk, or an elk, because those animals are tall enough that if a car strikes them, it strikes them in the legs and the entire torso and head and antlers uh, cartwheels back over the car, and these animals are tall enough that 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 they come through the windshield and land on the driver and or the passenger, and uh, the result is often a broken neck, um, death or, or or paralysis. So um, it's quite different than just hitting a deer or the deer's. I mean, there's going to be a lot of damage to the car and to the deer. But um, often the, the person the person survives without serious injury, unless of course they swerved and hit a tree and went off the road. Um, so a self driving car, uh, the ones that I heard about, I called. Um, I think I've talked to someone at Volvo, you know, Volvo and Saab, because there's a lot, uh, they're sold a lot in northern regions uh, are have concerns about moose hitting moose because there's a lot of fatalities. But when it, <laughs> I, I, I got curious about small animals like how does the car decide when it should just plow forward because it's safer to hit a pet than it is to swerve or how you know how uh if you stop short for a small animal then the, the car behind now smashes into you how do you how does a car make those decisions 
You know, at what point is it safer for the human, for the driver, to just go ahead and hit the raccoon um, instead of you know swerving to save the animal's life? How, and I tried to get an interview <laughs> with someone at Waymo uh, and a couple of other places, and they don't they didn't want to talk about that. <laughs> they didn't want to. Mm. They didn't want to engage on the topic, which um, leads me to think they haven't quite worked out um, worked out what to do because it, it's it's situation by situation. Uh, um, it, it, the worst thing to do in the case of a small animal on the road, with you know if there's trees and things on the side of the road, you know to swerve sharply um, and and put yourself at risk of going off the road and hitting a a tree or a rock or a barrier. Um, you know, that that's not what you want to do. But but it's also to say, well, our cars will just go ahead and plow into your dog or cat or raccoon (laughs) to save your life. We will just be just plowing right on through without even breaking or even blinking an eye. So that, you know, that the optics of that are kind of awful too. So that's a question that I have that I, uh, that as far as I know, hasn't really been answered. I think that the priorities right now, they've got so many other things to figure out before they get down to what do we do about someone's beagle? Yeah. I I mean, it reminds me of, of stuff I've read uh, recently, uh, just related in general to self-driving cars. They're just about all the the things we do, sometimes just nonsensical risks that we take, be it, um, you know, a risky left-hand turn or the fact that, yeah, that like I'm driving to pick my kid up from school, I might swerve around the chipmunk in the road. And it was, in retrospect, it was dangerous, but also in retrospect, I'm not sure I would have done anything else, you know? And, and yeah, how do you translate or improve upon that, that kind of decision-making in the, the machine. Right. And how do you tell uh, um, a small animal from a kid on a small bicycle? And how do you, I mean, those, those fine grain distinctions, how do you trust the car to make those? It's, it's really, it is really tricky. Uh, and um, yeah. And, and even, you know, I, I, uh, I have a, a new issue, a new edition of stiff coming out and I, with an epilogue where I went back and I talked about like, what's new in these, Topics And one of the things that came up was um, passenger safety in a self-driving car. If you you don't need to be at the steering wheel in a set position, if you can now sit sideways or, or you know, not you're not confined as you were as a driver. Well, now in an impact, how do you keep that person safe? Where do you put the airbags if somebody if people could kind of sit across from each other and, and you know, you free people up in the interior of the car? How do you keep them how do you keep them safe? Where does the airbag go? How do you, you know, how do you configure the seatbelt? So all of that has to be rethought and probably, you know, the, the small animal portion of it will be pretty far down the list. Is there, is there a date for the new edition of, uh, of stiff? This, this is exciting. Uh, yeah, this, this week, I think the, I think oh. August 31st, the new edition with a snazzy new cover. Oh, nice. Uh, comes out. Yeah. This is of course your, your, your first uh, big book uh, that, that, that kicked it all off. Yeah, my first book, yeah, kind yeah. of stiff, came out in uh, 2003, I think it was, yeah. Oh, awesome, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've, I've read that. I've read, I read all of your books that, that have come out. They're always, uh, always a joy. Oh, thank you. Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I love to hear that. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. 
there's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. You write the books, Jean, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So 
one thing I found interesting about um, the sections of the book involving humans and animals that come into violent conflict um, is that, well, you, so you have a chapter about leopards in India that intentionally stalk humans as prey repeatedly. Uh, they become habituated the, to this. And it got me wondering, what are some of the broad truths about the difference between animals that sort of stumble into hapless encounters with humans that might turn violent versus animals that deliberately stalk humans as prey? Yeah, the broad truth is that it's very uncommon for uh, an animal that can easily attack and kill a human to do that. We are not really on the, typically we are not on the menu. Something has to to change. And and in the middle Himalaya, where I was in India, uh, a couple of things happened. One is the theory that Jim Corbett, who was brought in to hunt down some of these uh, kind of famous man-eaters, as he called them, um, his theory was that during the pandemic of 1917, 1918, there were so many people dying that the, the traditional ritual of, you know, taking the body to the river and, and building a pyre and, you know, that wasn't happening. And they would, um, they came up with a more expedient ritual, which was to put a, a hot coal in the mouth and send the body off sort of down the hill towards the river, not to actually make the trek and do the whole ritual. And so there were a lot of bodies that were now um, available and a, a leopard will scavenge. Uh, and the, his belief was that they developed a taste for human meat that way and that they then went on to um, incorporate human meat into their diet going forward. Um, that's a, That's a theory that uh, may well be true. Um, the theory of the researcher that I traveled with was it had to do with what's going on in that part of the world, which is a lot of farming communities. Um, the men have given up farming and, and gone to look for work in the cities. And so there's a lot of rewilding land. It's, it's occupied by people. There are a lot of, you know, women and children left behind there, but there's cover now for animals. There's a lot of brush around homes and in communities in which um, leopards need to hunt. They will sneak up and then, you know, cover the last distance in a, burst of speed and a pounce. So they tend to need to have cover. Um, also livestock, there isn't being as well tended. So it's kind of be, it, it falls prey to the leopards and, and the people, the people who are watching the livestock sometimes are kids. And uh, I think 41% of the individuals killed by leopards in that region um, in this, once this researcher study were, were kids under 10. Uh, so uh, there's opportunities that weren't there for for animals that hunt and 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 sadly uh, a human or a child uh, there or the, or people's pets they're they're easier to catch than a deer or a wild pig so part of it may be leopards just realizing this is an easy dinner it seems like a lot of these uh, these stories in some way involve um, rapid changes or modification to the landscape done by humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does. Yeah. The, the situation there with elephants, again, uh, surprising to me anyway, number of deaths, uh, 500 deaths a year uh, caused by human deaths caused by elephants. Um, and what's happening there is there's, there's this elephant corridor as it's called. The elephants tend to move along this path looking for food um, it's in you know across northern India to the border of Nepal, and these regions are seeing an influx of of refugees and also 
Terry has built several establishments. There's roads coming through and the elephants are getting, this is the term pocketed and stuck in little pockets and, and elephants eat a lot. They travel in sizable herds and they, uh, are turning to the farmer's crops for food because they don't have enough food and they're stuck. They can't keep moving on the way they used to. And so then that's when you have conflict because you have these um, villagers who they're, they're depending on this food to, to, to survive, you know, it's, it's um, subsistence farming. And so, you know, a troop of elephants that comes through, even if they don't eat what you're growing, they're going to trample, you know, you get seven or eight elephants that are going to cause a tremendous amount of damage. So people see the elephants coming onto their land and they'll run out and they'll try, you know, they're, they're angry and they're upset and they tend to, uh, there tend to be deaths from uh, getting trampled or knocked over or, uh, I mean, an elephant, even if they're, that's not the elephant's intent, it's a very big animal and it just knocks you with its trunk. It can kill you. And um, so, so yes, it's, it's, Humans moving into the territory and and changing the landscape in ways that stymies their their natural behaviors and their 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 way of surviving and getting food. Uh, you see that also, you know, highways, interstate highways in this country sometimes are put in without taking a look at well, what what animals migrate seasonally to get food, go to a different elevation to get food or to breed, and are we cutting them off? You know, that so that's um, that's a problem. I mean, you can build an overpass, but that's an expensive thing to do and you know much better to look at that beforehand say you know what is the situation here in this this swath of land what kind of wildlife do we have and how do they move each year seasonally and um is there is this a bad idea uh correct me if i'm wrong but i i think another example of that kind of thing about um modification of the landscape and and the problems that causes is like poor choices about um the relationship between different types of plants or fruit bearing plants, especially and settled areas. Like I think you give the example of, was it in Aspen or somewhere else in Colorado mm-hmm. that the city was planting crab apple trees within the yeah. city, even while they're trying to solve their bear problem. But then the other uh, yeah. thing that stuck with me was, I think you were talking about um, cabins being like sited at somebody buy a plot of land and build a cabin right in the middle of a bunch of natural berry trees so sure. that would be the place where like the bears would already be habituated to coming. Oh yeah. 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 The, the crab apples in downtown Aspen. Um, I mean, crab apple, if you, I mean, if you've seen a crab apple tree, it's, they're tiny crab apples, but they're almost like they're clusters of them kind of like grapes. And the bear just sort of like opens its mouth, you know, and like pulls its mouth down the branch <laughs> and gets these big mouthfuls. I mean, a crab apple tree is just heaven. You know, if you're an animal looking to get a concentrated food source, and lots of calories to put on weight before you hibernate. Yeah, crab apple tree. Yeah. So the fact that those are planted in downtown, um, they're pretty when they bloom. Yeah, that's true. They are lovely in the spring, but um, creating yeah, uh, creating some issues there. And I and, and there was even efforts to get them the city to to take them out, and they resisted that, which um, just seems a little. It was a little ill-advised, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, uh, here in the in the Bay Area, we have a lot up in the hills in, in Berkeley and Oakland, a lot of deer. Uh, so it really behooves you when you do your landscaping to plant plants that deer are not interested in. That is something any good landscaper here will do is suggest plants that deer don't like. Otherwise, you won't have much landscaping very soon. 
and of course that this all leads to some people might might jump to the conclusion well don't don't we need to kill more of these animals and that's that's something you you discuss uh, uh quite a bit like this idea that if if, if these, sometimes these just elaborate efforts to remove the animals that then just backfire for for reasons that you get into in the book um and and at one point you you refer to quote the inside out history of conservation in america which which i think i i i love the way you put that there because um yeah, yeah, dealing with how conservation in America is often like tied up in these also these eradication movements or in the hunting movement. Can you speak to some of that that complexity there? Well, sure. Uh, uh, conser- conservation, uh, wilderness conservation, came out of a desire to set aside these large, pristine tracts of wilderness so that hunters would have a place to hunt. Essentially, they were they, they were um, hunt and fish, and, and and they're still. I mean, to this day. Uh, we have a lot of government land that is managed by wildlife agencies and wildlife agencies are funded still by uh, hunting licenses and taxes on equipment. So there's, there is this link. I mean, on the one hand, it is fabulous that these, these were set aside, that they didn't become agricultural land. I live in, in California. And if you go out to the central Valley, um, there are these little pockets of, of, of California as it, used to be these wetlands with these uh, tremendous diversity of bird life um, that, you know, bird, li- bird stopping over and during migration, you know, you have, you know, ducks, gadwalls, geese, uh, just like, dozens of species. It's a birder's paradise. Um, but there's also little um, hunting cabins uh, for duck hunters who come and, and the land uh, was set aside by and for hunting, but it's also something, you know, for, for hikers and, and birders. And, and it's a weird, it is, it, you know, I, 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 as a bird watcher used to go out there and never knew about the little hunters cabins It's kind of like a sort of secret reality of that, that area and those wetlands. But it really struck me, you know, driving home, going from this really beautiful kind of verdant swath of California, leaving that behind and going out into the more typical Central Valley, California, which is just a big flat expanse of big agriculture, you know, of crops. And so, you know, I felt very grateful toward the, the people who had set this land aside. And, you know, and there is this sort of instance of hunters and birders now. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it is, it is strange to think about uh, the fact that some of our um, parklands and wilderness areas were originally set aside for people who love to hunt. But of course, there's still the the funding issue here, right? Uh, and that's something you get into in the in the book that the you have these conservation efforts that are still still funded by hunting, funded uh, by by fishing, et cetera. And I guess in a in a perfect world that would all balance out. But there are cases it seems like where it raises the question: Is this the the right approach? Should there not be you know more federal funding for conservation? Yeah, I, I think that there tends to be. A mistrust of, you know, if the money's coming from hunting and fishing, um, isn't there a temptation on the agency's part to put the desires of those of their constituents first? You know, can we trust them to be unbiased and neutral saviors of the land? Um, so and there is uh, there is a, there has been talk of, a, of, of separating, separating, making the funding for some of these conservation efforts, federal funding, making it independent of hunting and fishing, uh, you know, creating some sort of body or pool of money that would would be earmarked for conservation and, 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 and just sort of creating some distance between the two. 
so, so yeah, that is a concern, and, and, and I think it would be great to, for that to happen. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was bought it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jin. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jin! Huh? Oh! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. 
And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So here's a question that uh, might be a little odd, but I wonder if you have thoughts about it. How do you think uh, about motive, the concept of motive differently uh, in a criminal justice context when the perpetrator of a crime is not human? Because a big part of human criminal justice is about understanding and establishing motive, treating crimes differently based on what the motive was or what the perpetrator's understanding was. Uh, The thing about the internal brain states that motivate the attacks of non-human animals it seems like you could think about them either as like less complex than their human equivalents and thus maybe easier to understand. Often an animal is just feeling threatened in some way or might be hungry. Or you could think about them as maybe more obscure because animals are more alien to our experience and they can't explain their motives in language. Yeah, the question of motive, it's interesting. In India, that's factored in. Uh, um the cases are treated differently um, if it's a if it's um, a predatory attack versus a defensive attack. Um, uh, so that's uh, if there's if there's a series, there's kind of a you know three strikes rule. You know if if this if the animal is coming in and preying on intentionally preying on livestock or or, or people, you know that's that's different from a defensive attack. There, with leopards, there are. As we talked about before, there are predatory attacks where the animal is specifically and intentionally going after a human. But there are tremendous numbers of cases. If you go further south into the tea growing regions, uh, which I, where I also spent some time um, the, in the in the tea on the um, tea plantations, leopards sometimes sleep under the tea plants because it's shadier and it's cooler. And the tea workers, the pluckers, people plucking the leaves, will sometimes surprise an animal. The animal will like leap up. Sometimes there's an injury, rarely a fatality. But that's a that's a that's that's a defensive, just an altercation that happened because the person surprised the animal and it felt threatened. So those are considered differently than a predatory attack. So there is that distinction made. Um, you know, here in the U.S., uh, when an animal harms a person, it's 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 considered a public health threat and it's it's typically that's that it has crossed a line regardless of whether the the bear was surprised and was defending itself um we tend to not make that same distinction if it harms or if it kills a person it it will be destroyed even if it was the person had a dog the dog ran at the bear the bear got upset the person sort of tried to intervene the bear turned and and attacked the person you know that uh, there's no trial where we can we can set forth the, the, the reality of the situation and why the bear might have done it and what the, what the situation created and, and, and in a sense kind of come at a motive or lack <laughs> of motive. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So in the American context, um, the way we react to conflict with animals is maybe less understanding of, of whether or not they might be justified and is more just kind of a pure utilitarian, you know, if, 
if an animal has harmed a human or, or, or a pet or something, it's just thereafter considered probably dangerous and thus usually is dealt with violently. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a public safety issue. And when the public safety is threatened, um, the, you know, that, that's going to, the people are going to be the priority, not the animal. I mean, I did talk to this, a bear, uh, a bear researcher who'd spent some time, I believe it was in Nepal where they have, Oh God, now I'm forgetting which species it is. I think they're bears. They're, they're bears that come in and they raid the property and they they sometimes uh, get into uh, altercations where someone is injured. And he said to the person in the community who responds to when these attacks happen, he said, if you saw a bear on a person, would you shoot the bear? And, and the guy said, it's not up to me to decide which life is more important. It was just a different, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very different mindset um, of, you know, the value and the rights of animals uh, versus humans. And, and uh, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm, it doesn't surprise me that, that we in the United States have the rules that we do. I mean, it's pu- public safety, you, you know, it's, if you feel, you know, if your family is being, you know, is, is, is in harm's way, then the, there's going to be agencies that will come in and try to uh, mitigate that threat. That's, what we do. So again, the book is is Fuzz when Nature Breaks the Law uh, by by Mary Roach, and I want to stress that we we didn't ask about anywhere close to all of the animals or scenarios or or topics that you discuss in the book. Uh, it's just uh, it's, it's 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 just so I would, like each chapter uh, you know impressed me. Uh, there's <laughs> so much discussed in the book. Uh, it's an unsecured garbage can overflowing with yes. treats. <laughs> it is. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I use that as a blurb on the paperback? Yes, <laughs> full. Yeah, but uh, but I thought just just for anyone out there, uh, like what if you were to summarize, like what is the big take home you want people to have from reading Fuzz? Uh, you know, what what would that be? Well, first of all, I, just, I, I you know I, I want I want people to know it's a fun read. It's not. I mean, sometimes talking about these things, it can seem like a, a bit of a downer. It's it's mm-hmm. animals that are sometimes you know, ending up being destroyed uh but it but now i try i try to, to keep things um entertaining and light and there's lots of room for that in this book um but as a as a takeaway um you know i just hope that people because people have a tendency to just especially since we use the words pest and nuisance and i do use the word nuisance in the book as well uh, we we have this tendency to immediately when we've got an animal coming onto our property doing something we don't want it to do. We want to just pick up the phone and call someone and make it go away. And there's, wait, there's, there's things uh, that prevent any further damage. There's, there's, you know, you can exclude the animal. You can call someone who actually has the welfare of the animal in mind. And the Humane Society of the United States has a great webpage, species by species. Here's some things to do to solve, resolve the problem without harming or killing the animal. So uh, I just, I just, I, you know, not, not not to be all on a soapbox or anything, but just just to try to, to calm down <laughs> and think about think about what you might do uh, before you call the wildlife control operator to set a trap and let it go in a park and and which it's not supposed to do, etc. Or set a trap and um, or put out a very glue trap. I can't believe they even uh, sell those anymore. So that's not a very short takeaway, is it? But that's that's what I, I guess I'd like people to just to, to think before they act a little bit. Well, and I do want to concur that the book book is is very fun and very funny. 
uh, like all your books, it, it, I've, I laughed, but I also, I also felt sad at times. <laughs> it made me think about things in a new way. So I, uh, essentially I felt all the feels as the, as the young people say. <laughs> Fully concur. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thanks for taking time out of your day to, to, to come on the show and discuss the book. Totally. Oh, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks once more to Mary Roach for taking time out of her day to come on the show and chat with us. Her website, if you want to learn more about her and her work, is maryroach.net. And as mentioned in the episode, there's also this new edition of Stiff out now as well with new cover art. So, so look for that. If you've never read it, uh, this will be a great Halloween season to pick it up or, or spook for that matter. Both of those, I think, would make for tremendous... Uh, Halloween seasonal reads. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core science episodes on Tuesday and Thursday, artifact episodes on Wednesday, uh, listener mail on Mondays. Friday is our time to cut loose and talk about a weird film with Weird House Cinema. And then on the weekend, you get a rerun. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process... 
share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 